Welcome to the Worthing Museum and Art Gallery podcast. I'm Dr Sam Bars, and over the next six episodes, I'll be going behind the scenes, exploring a different aspect of the work that goes on in the museum and the people who make it happen. What does a curator do? What kinds of objects does the museum have in its collection and how do the team look after them? How did the museum's story begin and what are the plans for its future? I'll be speaking to staff and volunteers at the museum to reveal the answers to all of these questions and more. This series accompanies the Museum and Art Gallery's Female Voices exhibition and begins and concludes by considering the women who've played a key role in the museum's story. Oh, a penny farthing there, it's not, not your average. <laughs> this second episode is all about the collections. Without the collections, we have nothing. <laughs> We're a building. The collections make us a museum. My name is Jerry Connolly, and I'm head of museum and collections, with particular focus on the dress and textile collection, and also the toy and doll collections. We feed the collections into everything. Feed into education, workshops, talks. So everything we do always come back to the collections that we hold in the museum. Worthing Museum has five main collections, art, archaeology, social history, toys and dolls, and dress. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Jerry, Sarah and James, who take responsibility for these collections. To start, I wanted to know what's in the collections. We've got a really varied archaeological collection, um, everything from Paleolithic flint axes from nearly half a million years ago, all the way up to uh, late medieval uh, and Georgian uh, and even Victorian pieces as well. My name's James Sainsbury and I'm the curator of archaeology and the social history collections at Worthing Museum. We've got uh, a large number of Roman coin hoards, Bronze Age weapon hoards, um, unique uh, Roman glass from Highdown, which is the Anglo-Saxon cemetery, um, and, and everything in between. Uh, we, have, we have a massive collection, um, probably in the tens of thousands of pieces, but obviously that includes you know, broken pieces of pottery as well as, as coins and things like that. You mentioned that there's a point at which the archaeology collection begins to cross over with the social mm -hmm. history collection. So what's, what's in the social history collection and what's that point of crossover in your mind? Mm, the point of crossover in mind is probably around 1750-1800. So I would imagine that our social history collection really begins with the growth of Worthing as a, as a resort in the in 1780s, 1790s. Our social history collection is, is huge and it's very, very varied. We have everything from, you know, programmes of the Connaught Theatre going back to the 1950s and 60s to uh, letters and diaries from uh, the World Wars, militaria from the wars. We've got uh, a large number of swords going back to the Napoleonic Wars as well. Um, quite a lot of the material we have is obviously related to Worthing. But we also have a, a significant amount that's actually come from various parts of the empire. So people would, you know, civil administrators, generals, admirals, for example, they would uh, retire to Worthing, and obviously when they, when they died, uh, their material would come into our collections. Lots of paperwork, as I mentioned, diaries, journals, that kind of thing, and a huge photographic collection, which is part of that social history collection that goes back to the 1860s in Worthing. Um, so some of these are unique. We're very recently, it was only a week ago, we were donated a beautiful family photo album taken by a lady called Winifred Gillespie between 1932 and 1936. 
My name's Sarah Hobson, I'm curatorial assistant, um, and I work mainly with the fine art collection. We've got a fantastic collection of oil paintings, uh, acrylics, a wide collection of drawings and works of art on paper, prints, lots of watercolours as well, and a small amount of sculpture. Being Worthing Museum and Art Gallery, we're particularly interested in things that have a local connection. So that might be the artist or a sitter in a portrait is someone who is particularly important or connected to Worthing in the local area. Um, might be that we collect something because it's a local scene or landscape or it might be something that is just has a historical or cultural or you know social co connection to this place. The content of the costume collections is around 40,000 pieces. Um, the earliest piece we've got, earliest complete garment, is from around 1612, so about 400 years old. But we can put a complete garment together from around the 1740s and, and then right through um, the um, rest of the 18th century, 19th century, and into the 20th century. And then from around the 19 teens, 1920s, we focus very much on homemade and shop bought within the dress history. Uh, textiles is a real mix of domestic crafts, some textile art pieces, but also some domestic craft pieces. So showing a, a fashion for things like tea tray covers and tea cozies and patchwork and bed linen, and usually with some craft skill involved in it. So like patchwork or embroidery, applique, those kind of skills um, attached. And then we have the toy and doll collection, really significant, amazing collection of dolls through 300 years. And dolls' houses, and an amazing, amazing collection of dolls' house furniture um, that sits mainly in boxes, sadly. And we don't have the display area, but great aspirations within the new development to show a lot more of the toy and doll collection. And then the toy collection is a real mixture of educational toys and just toys for play from around the 80, early 1800s right through to around the 1960s. So the collection does fizzle out a little bit and it is something that's on our radar to correct and, and collect and bring the collections up to date. While I was speaking to Jerry, Sarah and James, I asked them what some of the most unusual or special items were in the museum's collections. Probably easily the most unusual item in, um, in the archaeological collection is the Highdown Goblet. And this is a glass goblet probably made in Egypt around 400 AD uh, and then ends up in Highdown, uh, buried, with, uh, buried in a male grave. We don't know, he was buried with a sword so we presume he was a warrior. Um, it's a totally unique vessel, there's nothing like it ever been found elsewhere. Um, there are similar type of glass vessels from the Roman world, but nothing with the etching. So it's actually an etching of a hound chasing two hares, Greek lettering on the top saying good health um, to you and you, no, use me and good health to you, sorry, which suggests it has some nice wine in it or something like that. But it's a really special piece. Um, nearly all of the glassware from Highdown, which is, which is all fantastic in its own right. A lot of it's made on the Rhine, but this piece is made in, in the Eastern Mediterranean at a time when there's a lot of instability and, um, and difficulties in the Western Europe with the empire collapsing in that area. So it's one of those items where I just wish if, if it could talk, you know, find out what it saw as it travelled across that huge distance and ended up on a hill in Sussex. Um, with the social history collection, we've got some really odd pieces in there, um, especially some of the children's toys. 
So there's um, toys from the 1930s, like board games, which are very odd, uh, very odd art on them. Uh, there's a gentleman called Alan Sopper, who was a big board game maker back then. Um, and, and some of his, the drawings of the clowns on his board games are absolutely terrifying. And I say that's probably one of the, one of the uh, stranger social history pieces that we have. Um, we also have um, the only copy that I'm aware of, of a uh, 1943 German spy plane photo of Worthing from the air, looking at all of the defences here. Um, on the back it actually has uh, the German Nazi stamp saying top secret on it. So that, that's a unique item in our social history collection. Mm. Um, and it's, it's terrifying to think, I mean by 1943 there's no chance of them invading, but it's, it's terrifying to think that they knew exactly where every single defensive position was and they actually have a key down the bottom numbering every position. So um, quite a sobering thought if the invasion had happened. The jewel in the crown of our art collection, I would definitely say, is um, a, a Shakespearean-inspired portrait called Bianca by William Holman Hunt, who was one of the founding fathers of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. And it's one of our most popular paintings. It's, it goes on loan quite a lot around the world. Um, last year it went to San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. It's been to the Uffizi in Florence, um, which is lovely to think of you know, an artwork from the Worthing Museum and Art Gallery collection adorning the walls of the Uffizi and, you know, fantastic um, major art galleries around the world. Yeah, it's travelled the furthest and most frequently goes on loan, which is actually no um, easy thing because it's really, really big. It's extremely heavy. Uh, Bianca has her own purpose-made crate that is, uh, has been produced to the exact dimensions uh, to take it. It's, and it's so big it won't go in the lift of the museum, so getting that down the staircase is always good fun. Within the costume, and I've probably focused on the costume because that is my specialty area, but the, the blackwork jacket from 1612, a really rare piece, and anything that has survived in the textile context for 400 years complete, we know very little about it in terms of its ownership. We have had some research done on it, and we know that it was embroidered by four hands, so four people at least were involved in the making of the jacket. Um, so that's a really special thing. Um, we have some kind of other items within the collection. I think that this happens a lot with all of the collections is the crossover from collections. So we have a pair of shoes in the collections that were worn by Princess Amelia. So Princess Amelia is very important to the history of Worthing. So she came to recuperate from an illness in the late 1700s and put Worthing on the map as a fashionable seaside resort. So there's a, that crossover between social history and, and costume, so they're a really special piece. As well as containing human creations, the collections at Worthing also contain human remains. I don't know how many we've got in total, um, because of course some of the excavations you'll get, you know, the odd rib or, or the odd toe bones rather than a complete individual, um, but probably in the region of about 50 or 60 people and that goes all the way back to our oldest um, uh, set of human remains which is the Cisbury lady and she was recently radiocarbon dated to around 3600 BC. I wanted to know why Worthing has the collections it has, who decides what's in the collections and how do new things get added? The doll collection was something that was actively expanded upon. I think on the back of that, we started collecting toys. So we probably didn't actively go out and start collecting toys. They probably came in as part of social history. 
The costume collection similarly was expanded in the 1950s and 60s. But we also started, because the collection is a lot of homemade, we started collecting associated items such as paper patterns, sewing machines, needles, threads. And that's really interesting because it seems that that has expanded out into domestic craft. So within the social history collection, we now have a whole domestic craft section that actually there's no evidence that we actively set out to collect. Um, but probably was collected on the back of the fact that we had this amazing costume collection and was actively developing that costume collection. So there are collections that have developed. They're not focused collections and they're not collections that we've then gone, oh, we're going to become a center for domestic craft because um, that's done very well elsewhere and it's not quite there yet in terms of a full collection. There's other areas over the years where curators of the time have a specialist and they have a particular interest in collecting. So we have an amazing collection of English um, glass and um, the curator through the 1960s and 70s, he had a uh, passion for collecting glass. So um, I think there's evidence of the hands of curators over the years in the collecting, in the collections. I think that's one of the strongest. Um, in terms of evidence, I think all of the other curators have been quite um, open to expanding all of the collections and treating all of the collections equally. Usually it's donations, so we'll get people coming up to the desk and bringing in uh, wonderful things or very mundane things. Sometimes we'll have someone bring in something that's, that's amazing, but because it doesn't have... Uh, we had a, a lantern box brought in recently, and it was, it was a beautiful example. It had all the slides and everything, but it had nothing to do with Worthing. So generally now we discourage any, any donations that aren't directly related to the area. With archaeology, of course, nearly everything that's brought in that may or may not be archaeological uh, will be from the local area. So it's quite easy for me to, to accession that in. Uh, only, I think it was about a month ago, a lady was digging her allotment over in East Worthing and she found a beautiful Neolithic scraper. So it's about 6,000 years old. She brought it in, you know, saying she didn't want to embarrass herself because it might be nothing, but it was, it was brilliant, really, really nice example. And she donated that to us and that was on display just a week later. So we can get quite a quick turnaround like that, but invariably it's donations as opposed to anything else. Often I, you do get people coming in and they'll say, oh, I found this on the beach. And that always fills my heart with dread because invariably it's going to be a, a funny shaped flint. And it does look like it could be a, a tool or something like that, but flint forms in very strange ways. So as soon as I hear someone's found something that's not on the beach, then my heart goes up a little bit more than it might do otherwise. Having said that, we have had um, two really nice rings that were donated probably near when I started, about three and a half years ago. Um, they were found on the beach by a metal detectorist, um, and they were Victorian. So they're, though really that's archaeology, it's also social history, because it's basically people who have lost rings when uh, holidaying here um, about 150 years ago. Prior to about 1970, we didn't really have much of a collecting policy in place at the museum. And that's quite an important thing to consider when you're thinking about, you know, what's in a museum collection. Um, a collecting policy essentially helps us to be more focused in what we do and don't accept into the collection. So rather than just accepting anything and everything and not really having any particular criteria about how we select pieces. A collecting policy helps us yeah, identify the things that we're looking out for, the things that we prioritise in terms of collecting. So there are some pieces in our collection that are a little bit more random, um, things that we maybe nowadays wouldn't have accepted um, because they don't sort of fit in with that 
collecting policy. Priority is given to things like um, representing all the major British art movements from about 1800 onwards. Um, and many of those key art movements are represented. So the Camden Town group is particularly well represented. There's artists like Harold Gilman, Spencer Gore, Charles Ginner, uh, Lucien Pissarro and Walter Sickert. We've also got pieces in our fine art collection by some incredible female artists who are frequently associated with the Camden Town group in terms of producing art of a similar style and having some really close relationships with the Camden Town group members. These women artists, people like Stanislava de Karlowska, Therese Lassau and Sylvia Goss, um, and you can actually see their work up at the moment in Female Voices, the exhibition in our main art gallery. It's just interesting that when we talk about these kind of key important works in our art collection, we always talk about the Camden Town Group, but we rarely mention those three women who were so closely connected, but weren't sort of permitted to be members of the group because they were female. Um, their work is really under-celebrated. Given what Sarah had just described, I wanted to know if it was challenging to find art by female artists in the collection at Worthing to include in the Female Voices exhibition. Well, I can only speak in terms of our collection here, um, but I suspect that the situation with our own art collection here is true of many public art collections elsewhere, in that um, you far more frequently find females as, um, you know, the sitters or the muses, so in front of the canvas rather than kind of behind them producing and creating artworks. So in that way they play traditionally in the history of art quite a passive role, you know, being looked at, being painted and portrayed rather than actually having any sort of agency. There are some exceptions in our collection, um, many of which are in female voices, portraits, by women, but they do tend to be of other women or children, which is something that kind of occurred to me, which I found quite interesting. That might be something to do with, um, for example, Blanche Jenkins, who we've got three of her portraits in the collection, two of which are on display in Female Voices. And uh, those are all family members uh, that she painted. So for maybe many female artists, it was far easier to find a subject matter that was closer to home in the domestic sphere family members rather than finding a male sitter is probably maybe a bit harder. There's a, a couple of exceptions. We've, we've just been um, given a portrait of John Norwood who was a curator here once upon a time by Juliet Panett who was a real notable portrait artist quite connected to the local area. But there's very few examples in our collection of portraits by female artists, particularly of male sitters and make of that what you will. <laughs> From Sarah's perspective, the Female Voices exhibition at Worthing and the curatorial challenges it raised are part of a wider movement in museums and art galleries to explore the role of female artists more closely. I think there's been a real kind of renaissance recently in museums and art galleries and cultural institutions, maybe um, delving a little bit more into their collections to uh, have a closer look and place a spotlight upon female artists. The Female Voices exhibition doesn't just exhibit items from the arts collection. Jerry told me how careful use of items from the dress and textile collections helps visitors to get the most from the exhibition. There's one collection that we use quite a lot in recent years to promote the, the museum and its collections to a wider audience and um, costume in some ways 
breaks down some barriers because we all have some connection with clothing and can relate to clothing in some way. Um, and we use that to bring people in to see the other collections. The costume in the collection draws people in. When they walk into the space, they feel, oh, I can relate to that and will walk into the middle of the room um, and then they can engage with everything else um, and start picking up on the message we're trying to give around the whole of the collection and the rest of the art that's on the walls. I think also there's something about the space. It's a big gallery. It's a really big gallery. It's a difficult gallery in some ways to curate and it's really hard to make an impact with art on the walls. It has to be really strong pieces. And we were working with our collection, so there's a restriction there immediately. We are working with female artists, so that restricts it even further. And trying to get a history behind all of, and a connection to the exhibition, we were very conscious that it just might feel quite empty and almost quite intimidating as a space. So it kind of softens the space and just makes it a much more relaxed space to walk into. Um, and you don't feel so conspicuous as a visitor standing in the space because you have things that kind of shelter you or protect you um, from just standing in a big room. <laughs> looking at a single painting on a wall. You can still do that, but you can do it in a much more friendly environment, or feels like a friendly environment. Given the age, fragility and significance of many of the items in the collections at Worthing, I was interested to hear what the team do to look after them. We have probably one of the largest flint tool collections in the country, uh, and they're very good at maintaining themselves, being flint and having formed many, many millions of years ago. Um, so that's quite easy. The issue we, we do have is, especially some of our metalwork from high down, the Anglo-Saxon grave goods, uh, the cases it's in are quite outdated and there's not the best environmental control. So you can actually see that there has been a deterioration in, in, the, in the pieces since they were originally excavated. Some of them were excavated 130 years ago, so you, you would expect that. Um, so it's about getting this conservation training um, to actually stabilise those kind of objects. With most of our metalwork that isn't on display, uh, we use silica gel beads, and that basically takes any moisture out of the air. Because moisture with iron, of course, is, is basically going to make it uh, rust very, very quickly. The same thing will happen with bronze, it will start to get bronze rot and you can't really stop that once it's started. So with the archaeological collection it is quite difficult because of the size of it. With the social history, as I say, a lot of it is paperwork, so we just try not to handle it too often. Um, obviously wear gloves and a lot of things in acetate as well. Um, so each, each sheet of paper, whatever it is, archaeological plans, journals, whatever, it's usually kept by itself, lots of padding in a box. And, and it's pretty stable like that. A lot of it's about controlling the temperature in the building itself. Um, but within the boxes, it's almost like its own microclimate. Things rarely get broken because um, all of the staff here that do handle collections undertake quite a lot of training in how to handle um, objects with you know, cultural value. So, for example, I was handling some um, decorative arts pieces yesterday. They've got handles. You don't pick things up by the handle because it's just notoriously the weakest part of the, of the object. So you kind of learn pretty early on when you're working with museum uh, collections how to handle those things properly. Interest in the museum's collections far outpaces what can be displayed at any one time and also reaches far beyond Worthing. 
The team are always developing new ways to make the collections as accessible as possible. We currently display about 5% of the complete collections at any one time. We think we can get that up to about 25%, which is incredible if we can. We think we can. Um, and just for the public to be able to see the collections in that, in, in that sort of enormity um, and understand what we've we've um, got in store and, and we do have open days in the store but they're so small that we have to limit the numbers so even though we've been doing it for years there's a very small percentage of the public and local population that has seen it so um, we want to make sure that the public get to see more of the collections. One of the things we're very keen on doing and I think we've done quite well over the last year or two is promoting our hidden collections on uh, social media. I run the Facebook page, our colleague Catherine over at Theatres does the Twitter page and my colleague Emily on the front desk does the Instagram. So I'll go through collections, it's usually in my day-to-day -day work when I'll come across an item or I'm handling an item I think well you know it'd be great for everyone to see this and, and it goes out on social media. Emily runs the Instagram account but she's got her own interests so often her posts on there will be quite fortuitously geared more towards an Instagram audience which very much seem keen on textiles and, and jewellery. Um, we find if we post that kind of thing on Facebook, it doesn't really get much uptake at all, but the archaeology is very popular on Facebook. Um, so it's about sort of knowing your audience on each platform, but, but social media is how we do that, absolutely. The other way is, of course, with, uh, with the talks and the walks I run. After a talk or during, during the summer walks, I'll actually bring out genuine artefacts from the collections, most of which aren't usually on display, and people can actually handle them themselves. Um, so everyone puts white gloves on, and then they can actually pass the objects around. Um, which really connects them with, with the local heritage and, and the history of the area. Working with um, colleges and universities around the country, um, we get our collections researched, we get our collections um, conserved, so we understand our collections a lot better. We can improve our display, our interpretation of those collections with that knowledge. So everybody benefits because we, we don't just collect that information and put it away in a in a filing cabinet, we, that then informs exhibitions, it informs how we interpret something um, and that information is shared with the public. Sometimes items from the collections will be loaned to other museums. As well as opening up the collections to a wider audience, there are numerous other benefits for the staff and the items involved. We loan 70 hats to a museum in Basel last year. And when I was first approached about it, about two and a half years ago, um, I thought, yeah, that would be a great thing to do, and started working through it. And um, although we loan on a regular basis, we had never loaned on that scale. And the logistics of loaning on that scale um, very quickly hit and working them out. Um, so sorting through the collections, checking through condition reports, um, engaging with uh, conservators to conserve some of them before they travelled, the packing. Um, but the challenges that, that came out of it actually led to some amazing learning for the museum. And part of that learning was around staff and volunteers getting experience in areas that we hadn't engaged with before, so logistics, but also working with the conservator, um, new skills around how to pack, um, and 
writing condition reports and all of those processes um, were a real challenge at the time and um, were quite stressful at the time. And if it wasn't for about five amazing volunteers that worked on the project with me, it would have been a real struggle to deliver. Um, but the learning that came out of it in terms of our confidence as a team to be able to gauge and know that we can um, deliver those kind of loans and delivered it to a really high standard to the extent that the curator who had borrowed hats from other collections around the world had came back to me and said that the, the standard of the delivery and the packing was she had never seen before, which is quite nice to hear when you think of us as a regional museum. So that's kind of a shared learning that we all benefited from. But also we learned um, the, the confidence for us to engage with museums like um, the one in Switzerland where when we loan to a museum there's always a debate around um, whether we should charge for loans or not and it's not done within the sector um, just because um, museums struggle and we're usually loaning to museums that don't have budgets but what we do loan um, when we do loan, we always look for conservation to be done on any objects that are going out on loan. So we got equivalent of about £25,000 worth of conservation paid for on the hats that went to Switzerland. I reckon that even as a higher fee, we would have probably got a third of that if we were lucky. So actually, we gain more from it by dealing in that way. And I think the reason we can very... Um, comfortably ask for conservation fees is that that will be funded that's a, that's something that organizations will fund because they're benefiting collections in the long term in taking care of and developing the collections Jerry Sarah and James have lots of audiences to consider some of those audiences haven't been born yet what will the collections hold in a hundred years time and why is it important for the museum and art gallery to hold items from the present and not just the past? Uh, well, in a hundred years' time, I imagine we'll have archaeology from the sunken buildings along our current coastline, <laughs> when they're all underwater. Um, uh, the archaeology collection will, will inevitably keep growing. As I said, one of the problems is space. Things are always being found. So eventually we're going to have to be very, very strict with what we take in. And we're quite strict already, to be honest with you. Um, there's a big problem with commercial archaeological units because they dig up a huge amount of stuff that isn't particularly useful for museums as display material. Um, so we almost have to, you know, we have to charge them to, to deposit um, material here, which, which most of them don't. Um, so the archaeological collection will keep growing. The social history collection, we have, for example, uh, What's On Guides from 1960 from Connaught. We'll probably have the 2019 What's On Guide in, our, in a box somewhere. So people, researchers, can look back at the the culture of the time and, um, and the fashion and everything else. Um, so I imagine it will keep growing, but we do have to be very careful with what we take in going forward. I hope that in 100 years time, our current fine art collection is, um, if it continues to be as well looked after and preserved and cared for, that it will uh, still be 
great for visitors to experience and enjoy and in addition to that that we have loads of what is currently contemporary art and um, but in a hundred years time people will look back and think um, how old-fashioned it is or of a time and that it tells people something about the time that we're currently living in I guess. I think it's important to be collecting contemporary art now rather than in the future because if we're working on the assumption that people come to a museum expecting just to see old things, well, that is useful in itself, but I think museums should also reflect society and people now as well. And I think for a lot of people, seeing the world reflected back to them in real time is, is just as important as looking at things from the past and understanding why we're here and where we've come from. Thanks to Jerry Connolly, Sarah Hobson and James Sainsbury for joining me for this episode of the Worthing Museum and Art Gallery podcast. And thank you for listening. In the next episode, we'll be taking a look at the museum's involvement in research. The Female Voices exhibition runs from Saturday the 19th of October 2019 to Saturday the 15th of February 2020. To find out more, search for the Worthing Museum and Art Gallery online on Facebook and on Instagram. Or even better, come in and look around. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not subscribe and have the next episode come to you as soon as it's released. See you next time.